Let's pray and then get into Romans 8. Father, thank you so much for this morning, for the great blessing that the musical worship was to us as we were able to have our, our attention really riveted on you and your greatness and your splendor and your majesty. And we give you thanks for that. And Lord, thank you also that we've been able, able to hear your word read. Uh, we've been able, able to be led in prayer by Tyler. And now we gather around your word and we ask for you through the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us, to impress us with your greatness, to equip us for life and ministry as a result of studying this great passage that is before us. Glorify yourself through what happens here for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I can hardly wait to talk about what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about providence. Not Rhode Island, not the canceled TV show, the providence of God. The providence of God. I've just been itching to talk about the providence of God. I love the providence of God. I love to talk about it. I love to read about it. And pastorally, I want you to get it if you don't already. I want you to understand. I want you to be impressed with God's providence. I want it to change the way you think. I want it to change the way you live, change the way you worship, change the way you suffer. To know the providence of God and to worship God as a result of His great providence. You say, what is providence? Let me explain it this way. One of my favorite books, uh, of, uh, one of my favorite quotation books says this about providence. Opened it up under the line providence, entry number one. First way of explaining providence, it simply says this, Romans 8.28. Source, the Bible. There you go. You want to know what providence is? It's Romans 8.28. Unfortunately, that quote book doesn't quote the verse. It just gives the citation. It's my only uh, knock. But go ahead and look at that verse. You want to know what providence is? It's Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Providence. You cannot improve upon that definition of providence. You can try to reduce it down and say, the providence of God is God, and I have to borrow from the verse to even explain it and reduce it down. It's God causing all things to work together for good, for believers. It's about the only abbreviating I can do. Everything works together for good for believers at the hand of God. That's providence. Now, believers, since the Apostle Paul wrote this, have tried to unpack it, have tried to help us understand it better. One Protestant reformer put it this way, God, by His power, supports and maintains the world which He created. He rules, here's what I wanted to emphasize, each and all of its parts by His providence. Emphasizing that causing all things aspect. The Westminster Confession, which has stood the test of time, which gives us some good, deep thoughtfulness by believers who've gone before us, says a mouthful, but let me quote the Westminster Confession. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, 
by His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable or unchangeable counsel of His own will to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And I think we'll probably come back to that one. But since I went to public school, I like this definition best. That power which erring men call luck. That's providence. What we're going to do is we're going to start a series within a series, and I'll explain that in a moment, on providence. Romans 8.28. We're going to do our best to mine the depths of Romans 8.28, and I'm sure we won't even get close. But we're going to look at ten truths about providence that are vital. Ten truths about providence that are vital for you and for me if we're going to understand who God is, if we're going to understand how God works in this world, and if we're going to really be able to be equipped to understand life and deal with life and cope with life. I remind you that Romans 8.28 comes in a greater context from 8.17 and following that has to do with suffering as a believer. You need to understand providence if you're going to be able to deal with suffering in a way that honors God, in a way that understands God. And so we're going to find ourselves being equipped. Ten truths, ten vital truths about providence that equip us, that help us to think rightly about God. And we'll look at the first two of them this morning. Now, let me do my best to be confusing. It is an art. Some have refined it quite nicely. (laughs) We were doing a series that had to do with pain and suffering. Romans 8.17 down to 8.30. Well, we're putting that series on pause because we are only going to zero in on 8.28. But providence was one point of that former series. It's not that confusing. I was just being a little facetious. That series we were doing on pain and suffering, 8.17 and following, we're putting on pause. We'll come back to it as we focus only on that one special and unique way of dealing with suffering and it's providence. We really need to deal with this. Sometimes when I'm getting ready to preach a sermon or I'm studying, I I just feel like being the herald, you know, just being the preacher. I like that. I want to herald God's word because that's what I've been called to do, 2 Timothy 4, chapter 2, without compromise. But other times I still feel that way and this is one of those times. But I even pray, I pray on my way to church this morning as I'm thinking God, help me to be pastoral. Help me to be sensing and feeling the weight of a shepherd, of a pastor. And the reason for that is because I want you to... I, always, I don't know why I speak in these terms. I want you to get it, okay? I want you to catch on. I want you to understand this. I, I know you can't sustain and deal with the tough stuff of life if you don't have a right view of God. And I can't either. I know this will help a ton. Not only that, If you think the right way about God through the good times and through the bad times, you'll think rightly about Him and you'll glorify Him through all of that. So I feel especially burdened pastorally. I don't want this to be good homiletics, good preaching oratory, as much as I want it to be you grappling with the issues. And some of these emphases in this passage bring up questions that are controversial questions. We're not going to get into that so much today, but you're going to have questions. I want you to have questions. I want you to grapple with some of the tough issues that relate to providence. 
Because by the grace of God, it will allow you to come out the other side with strong convictions about God causing all things to work together for good for those who love Him and for those who have been called according to His purposes. And it is awesome to be able to know that and to glorify God by knowing knowing that. So that's what we'll be doing. This morning we'll look at one and two. We'll look at the first and second truth about providence that is vital if we're going to understand Christianity, vital if we're going to understand God, as controversial as some of these might be. Number one, the first thing you've got to know about providence from Romans 8.28, providence is known. I'll try to limit these to one word. The word is known. Providence is. Each one of these will start with that. Providence is known. By the way, I'm going to try to get every one of these points. Maybe point 10 is not in the verse. In fact, it isn't. Nine of the ten are actually going to be in the text itself. So we'll do our best to really emphasize Romans 8.28 in the next few weeks. Providence is known. Go ahead and see it. It's right there in the verse. Look there with me. And we know, there it is, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. We know this, Paul says. In other words, this is common knowledge. He's saying to a group of Christians, the Christians who are residing in Rome, he's saying, we know that all things work together for good. We know this. When I'm writing to you, I can expect you to know this already. So I'm just reminding of you, you, I'm reminding you of what you already know. You're going to face difficulties. You're going to suffer. But I'm going to give you some balm. I'm going to give you some salve on that wound. I'm going to build you up with a rock, a foundation. Let me remind you of something you already know. God causes all things to work together for good. We, we know this. This is an assumed, this is an assumption. And what's interesting to me is, he's making this assumption when he's talking to people who are, in essence, baby Christians. They're, they're not like us. They, they don't have 2,000 plus years of Christian history to draw upon and gifted teachers that God gives to his church. They don't have that. This is the church has just begun. And he's writing to the Christians. He's not even writing to the Christian leaders. He's saying, we know this. Everyone who gets this letter or hears this letter read to them, which is how it would have come, all of you know. In the South, y'all know this, right? We all know about this. Now, how can you do that? Let me ask you. How could Paul say, we know that? This is common knowledge. Everybody knows this. Even if you're just a baby Christian, you know this. Well, think about it. Think about the Old Testament for starters. Now, I, I understand that some of those in Rome are going to be pagans. They're going to be Gentile background. They get converted. Some are going to be Jewish, so they're going to know their Old Testament. But what are they going to do? They're going to be telling the, the, their Gentile friends who've been converted about this great God of the Old Testament. And they're going to be learning. Genesis teaches the same thing, right? Joseph, you know the story? The story that's not about Joseph? <laughs> it's about God's providence. What you wicked men meant for evil, he says, God intended for good. It's providence. And you read through the Old Testament narratives. You read narrative after narrative after narrative. And what do you see? What you see, if it's not explicit, you see what R.C. Sproul calls the invisible hand of God. Providence. You see it everywhere. 
see it all over the place. Sometimes there are those flashpoints in the Bible. You get to Daniel and you say, wow, God is working providentially, raising up kings and bringing down kings. God is working here. This is absolutely amazing. That's why we like Daniel so much, because he saw the providence of God and called it what it was. Or maybe the classic of all Old Testament uh, providence books of the Bible. Anybody know? It's the book of the Bible where God's name is never mentioned, but His invisible hand is everywhere. It's Esther. Esther is all about the providence of God. Esther's not all about Esther. We don't know anything about Esther. Esther, Esther made some bad decisions, quite frankly. Let's not extol Esther as this great woman of virtue. What was she doing in the position she was in? There's some questions there. You know what Esther's about? Esther is about God's Invisible hand working in and through this woman, regardless of what she did, whether or not it was right or wrong at times, preserving the people of Israel for the benefit of His people. It's God causing all things to work together for good for those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purposes. And so it's no doubt that the Apostle Paul can say what he says here, at least in part because of the Old Testament. It's everywhere. We know that this is true. We know this. So given the testimony of the Bible, oh, given our Christian heritage, 2,000 plus years of people writing about providence all over the place, I can stand here and say, folks, 10 points in 10 minutes, because we all know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and those who have been called according to His purpose. Did you feel the sarcasm? I hope you sensed the sarcasm. I was trying to communicate sarcasm. Never took a drama class, so I'm not too good at it, I guess. We can't assume that. We can't assume that. In fact, most people I ask who are professing Christians don't know what providence is. If I say, what's providence? They say, I don't know. Huh? What? And then I think, well, maybe it's just because the word isn't used, right? So, so, so then I'm going to take somebody who says they're a Christian, and I'm going to open up Romans 8.28. I'm going to ask you to look at Romans 8.28 again with me, but we're going to read 29 and 30 because it's all wrapped in together. It's part of one passage. And I read this to him. Okay, you don't understand what providence is. You don't know the word, but let, let me read this to you. Okay, let's read it together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers, Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And now, they're not only not buying providence, they're offended by providence. More times than not. Because it says predestined. Which is inseparable, by the way, from God causing all things to work together for good. It's wrapped up in providence. We're not really focusing on 29 and 30 today, but but they're inseparable. And so what we can't do is say, we know that. In our day, and you know what it tells us? It tells us that there's a problem. We're not, generally, evangelicalism, let's say, we're not even where the baby Christians were 
before 2,000 plus years of church history were in a bad state. So if you're here and you can't tell me what providence is, you can now because you just quote Romans 8.28 to me. I'm going to say, you're a theologian. (sighs) But if you're here and before you were here, you couldn't say what providence is, I'm not here to offend you or make fun of you. I'm here to say you're in the right place. We need to recover this, and we'll talk about why. Scratch that. If that offends you, and it motivates you, so be it. Glad you're offended. You're in the right place. (laughs) We need to know this. It's crucial that we know this. Why don't we know this? If I were to ask you, and this is a roundtable discussion, which is not very convenient for this setting, what, what got us here? Why, why is it that we're in a place now where evangelicalism, the, the group that says they believe the Bible, that had the battle for the Bible not very long ago, and we said we were going to fight to the dying end for the Bible, that when we, we say, well, what's something basic like providence, we don't know what it is, and not only that, when we read the text on providence, we're offended by it. What got us here? Well, there's no inspired answer to that question, but partly because we don't know what the Bible says. Um, partly because uh, when we do read our Bibles, we don't pay attention to what it means by what it says. We, we put this egocentric, psychobabble, you know, sort of lens over it, and everything we read has to do with us. We have what Sinclair Ferguson calls the Where's Waldo Syndrome. And guess who Waldo is? It's you. <laughs> it's me. It's like that children's book from years ago. Not that many years ago. Where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? got to find Waldo. The goal of looking at the Bible is to find Waldo. And Waldo is Pat. The Bible says in the last times people will be lovers of self. We think the Bible is all about us. When the fact of the matter is the Bible is all about God being in charge, being in control. In the beginning, Waldo. No! In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's all about God working. And you know what's great about that? The great thing about that is, if God is in charge and the hero of the Bible is God, not Pat slash Waldo or you, the great thing about that is, if he's in charge and he's a loving God with a sovereign purpose for all those who love him and those who have been called according to his purpose... I'm a benefactor. It's good. It's for me. It's a blessing. I don't want to be a, I don't want it to be all about me. I don't want it to be all about you. It's all about God. And, and He's been so kind and gracious as to include us in His plan. What we need to do is repent of where's Waldo. We need to insist on preachers preaching God's word. Because when you preach God's word, the clear intent of the scripture falls open and you see that God is the hero. We need to have our Sunday school teachers uh, equipped in doing this so it's not all about Daniel. It's not all about Esther. Reading the Bible like pagans. It's about God causing all things to work together for good for those who love Him and for those who have been called according to His purposes. And when we recover that, it's not raining on our parade. It's giving us a foundation to be able to stand on in the tough stuff. Not only that, it allows us to actually be here for the reason we're supposed to be here, which is to glorify God. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but I can't help myself.
when you stop and think, even if you don't believe it, you just stop and think about the idea, about these words, the, the implication of these words. God causes all things to work together. That is a mindful, but it most certainly is glorifying to God because He's center stage. He's in charge. And that's how it's supposed to be because He's God. So I'm motivated pastorally. I'm motivated among, in the Christian culture for us to be able to be equipped for this, to recover not only the verbiage but the theology and understanding so God is glorified and so God's people are sustained. I say, God, help us to recover the biblical doctrine of providence lest it be doomed to the ash heap, as R.C. says. Okay, so I hope you're either offended and motivated or encouraged and motivated or something and motivated. Providence. God in charge. In the context of suffering. Where we want to be is in the place where we can say, we all know God causes all things to work together for good those who love Him, those who have been called according to His purpose. That's where we want to be. It's where they were as baby Christians. We at least want to be there. This is not meant to be controversial. This is meant to be comforting. And I hope that's what's going to happen. Let's move to a second. A second truth about providence that is vital to understanding God. It's vital to understanding providence. It's vital uh, to, to getting you through the tough times. Number two, God-centered. Providence is God-centered. I said I was just going to use one word, so let me modify that. That's two words, God-centered. Theocentric, that's one word. God-centered. Theocentric. Now you all know a fancy theological word, and so you can take a class in the Institute for Biblical Studies and you know be smarter than everybody else. Maybe not. This doctrine, this reality of Romans 8.28... Make no mistake about it. If it's anything, it's God-centered. I mean, this, this has got God on the center of the stage, starting with the love. Look there at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's a good starting place. Uh, who is it that benefits of all this? Who, who, is, who is it that has everything work together for their good? It's for those who love God. Those who see God as the one true God. Those who agree with God in His command to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those who agree with God to have no other gods to love Him. Those who love God because God loved them first, according to 1 John. But however you slice it, this is God-centered even in that statement. This is true for the lovers of God. And we'll talk more about that in the days ahead. I just want you to see that this is just dripping. It is saturated with, with theocentricity. Perhaps it's even clearer, and I've been quoting it this way because I, for 20 years, memorized the New American Standard Translation, and I'm preaching from ESV. But perhaps it's even clearer in the NASB. God causes all things to work together. The ESV is a good translation. NIV is a good translation as well of this particular matter. But the NASB just kind of puts it right out there in your face. And it's implied in the other translations. It's just not quite as pushed 
theocentric is God causes all things to work together for good. Wow. Who's the focal point here? Where is my trust? It's the one who's, who's central to everything. It's, it's God. The only wise God, Romans 16, 27. God causes. God's in charge. God's orchestrating. How about this? God is acting like God in providence instead of the genie in the bottle. Instead of Pat, God is causing all things to work together for good. God is like God. It's amazing. There's another emphasis in verse 28 that tells us it's God-centered. It's at the end. Look there. For those who are called according to His purpose. According to His purpose. That's very God-centered. God is causing all things to work together. And then dot, 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 in connection with His purpose. God has a purpose. Well, if God, because He's God, think about it, has a purpose, guess what? God's purpose is going to come to pass. That's very God-centered, the fact that God has a purpose. Let me ask you, what is God's purpose? What's God's purpose for your life? What's God's ultimate aim? What's God trying to accomplish in your life ultimately? Well, if you keep reading the verses, you'll know the answer. Verse 29 is going to tell you. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Even think about that. We're going to study that in the days ahead. That's destination secured before you get there. Predestined. You already arrived. It's a guaranteed fact you're going to arrive. So his purpose is, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, look there in 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is. There's the purpose. The end of verse 30 tells us he also glorified, which is a synonym. God's purpose for your life ultimately is not that you'll feel good, that you'll never suffer. In fact, that doesn't even fit the context because he's telling you you are going to suffer. God's purpose for Pat's life, God's purpose for your life, if you are a Christian and he's going to cause all things to work together for this purpose to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is. But that's very theocentric when you stop and think about it. It's very God-centered when you think about it. He wants you to look like his son. He doesn't like the way you look right now. He doesn't like the way I look right now because we're rebels, we're sinners, as justified as we might be. His son, whom he said from heaven, I am well pleased, talking about his son. He finds pleasure in his son because his son is perfect. His son became part of the human race to obey the law perfectly, to submit to the Ten Commandments perfectly, to secure righteousness for us and all of those things. But he's pleased with his son. He's not pleased with us because we're rebels. And so what is he doing based upon the work of his son? In his life, death, resurrection, he's making sinners like Pat and sinners like you people he can be pleased with, conforming them to the image of his son. Wow. God's goal for your life, his purpose for your life, the reason he's causing everything to work together for good is so that you can be as much like Jesus Christ as is humanly possible. Right? Because you'll never become the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God. 
but you'll be conformed to the image of His Son. You'll be sinless. That's what He's doing. And He, and he uses the term at the end of 30, glorified, perfected. And it's part of God's plan so much so, it's so theocentric that He even says glorified, past tense. Hasn't even happened yet, but in God's mind, because He's a predestinating God, it says it right there twice, it's done. Theocentric. Big time. God-centered. Providence is very God-centered. Very God-centered. All things. Think about that just from a vantage point of, of being complicated. Nobody can do that. You know? Think about that. Causing all things, the good and the bad, to work together so that somehow through the process I'm becoming conformed to the image of Christ until I see Him, as First John says, and I'm made like Him. All things? You know, we have a real hard time in our house getting three of five kids out the door to school on time. You know? I'm trying to cause all things to work together for good right in my house because it's my responsibility and my wife and I team up to try to get that done. And man, how do you do with three? Or we could just say, what about one? Or if you're single or your kids are out of the house, you know, you, you can't even get all your stuff straight. And maybe you're, you know, the, the multi-dimensional master planner and you still can't get it all done right. The Bible says God causes all things. How about down to the microbiotic level of disease and brokenness in this world? To the bigger stuff like car accidents or world wars or family breakup and trauma. You fill in the blank. We're going to talk about this as a separate point later. All things working together for good. I can't figure out how God could do that for one person or, or one church. The book of Revelation tells us there'll be more people saved even during the tribulation than you with a human eye can even count. God is causing all things to work together for their good? This is impossible! Unless we're talking about God. I can't get my pea brain around it. There's no way. There's no way. This is God-like. If I can skip ahead to Romans 11.33, it makes me want to echo those words. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God blows your cotton-picking mind, is my translation for that. What? This is amazing. What power God must have to be able to do this? What wisdom He must have to be able to do this? It's absolutely astounding. But remember the context of our call to theocentricity. The context is getting you through the valley context of Romans 8, 17 and following is getting you through the tough stuff. 
my life is in shambles. Everything's a wreck. What about this? What about that? And some of you know a lot more about this than the rest of us do. But we all have our issues. Broken world, broken relationships, all of the stuff. What's the key? To have the Bible be all about me. Could I go to the Christian bookstore and find another psychobabble study that somehow twists and perverts the Bible to have it be all about me? No! How about this? God is in charge. Read about it in Genesis. God is in charge. Read about it in Revelation. And while you're, you know, on your way there, just remember that the whole thing is covered by the reality of providence, Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good. And as we'll see, not for everybody, but for those who have been called according to His purposes. Those who love God. For believers. I mean, that, that is just bedrock foundation. I want you to have convictions about those things. You know, you couldn't pry my dead fingers off of the doctrine of providence lest I can't even deal with life. Not to mention death. God's charge. And then what happens? Again, I'm just reminding you of what I've already said. The implication of this passage. It lets God be God when we say, yes, indeed, God causes all things to work together for good. Because otherwise, it's if right now evangelicalism is saying, how dare God be like God? Doesn't look much like me. I want him to be there. I'll fight for him to be there. Not that he needs me. But for the sake of other sheep. This is, this is just sustaining, crucial, glorifying. It's what we need. And now, if I can use Hebrews 1 as a transition to closing this and leading us right into celebrating the Lord's Supper and exalting Christ. Turn to Hebrews 1 with me, if you would. And what I'm going to ask you to do is you're turning to Hebrews 1. If you're new to the Bible, you can find a table of contents, maybe in that Bible we gave you this morning. It's toward the end. You can find the book of Hebrews. But as you're turning there, Hebrews is going to help us not talk about providence in general terms of of what I'm going to call God talk. A lot of people talk about God and maybe providence, perhaps. No, they don't, but you get the idea. It's just kind of fluffy God talk. It's not very specific. Hebrews 1 sharpens our focus. It zeroes our attention in. Who are we talking about when we're talking about God causing all things to work together for good in this world? Exactly who are we talking about here? Let's read. I love this. Hebrews 1.1 Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers and by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. I can just stop for a second. As good as it's been that God has been communicating God and He's been revealing truth to us, as great as that's been, He's done something even far more magnificent. He's done the very best thing. He's now spoken to us through His Son. Let's keep reading. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature Underline this part. And he upholds. That's a providence word. He upholds the universe by the word 
of his power. Don't you like that? You know who we're talking about when we're talking about the upholding of the universe, the sustaining of the universe, the holding it all together, ultimately for the good of the people of God. We are talking about not general God talk. We're talking about specifically the person of Jesus Christ, and it's tied to his work, as the text goes on to say. This is about Christ. Be impressed with Christ today as you think about providence. Be impressed with Jesus Christ. It's not that he's not working with the Father through the power of the Spirit. He most certainly is. But God wants you to see his son high and lifted up, central to his plan, central to his purposes in this world so that you would glorify him on your way to becoming like him. Christ is central to the whole thing. You know how it is uh, that all things work together for good? Well, ultimately, it's because Christ came and lived for you. Even though you're a sinner, he lived to obey for you. Even though you don't, he came to be crucified for you. He came to rise from the dead for you according to his perfect plan as he worked it out in the Godhead with the Father. Then it's applied by the Spirit of God to us. We learned about that in Romans 8 as well. But we're even seeing here that he's on center stage, upholding the whole thing who are you going to glorify when you think about all the things that happen in your life that are good all the things that happen in your life that are bad all the things that happen in your life that others would call luck Jesus Christ upholds all things it's amazing he's amazing I love providence but I love the God of providence better. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the centrality of Christ in providence. And I look forward to next week as we talk about his work on the cross happening according to providence. And I look forward to even dealing with some of the controversial questions that have, has to do, that have to do with this passage and this reality. Lord, may even those controversial questions further move us to want to study and contemplate and consider and to be faithful. That we might believe in a God who's in charge, that we might believe in a God who loves us, we might believe in a God who causes all things to work together for our good, for His glory for his fame in this world and in the age to come. In Jesus' name, amen.